So our passage today is from Isaiah chapter 9. So as you turn to Isaiah chapter 9, uh, please stand with me if you're able, and we'll read God's Word together. Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff on his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You may be seated. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the opportunity to be together today to worship you. As we continue to contemplate your plan of salvation through the sending of your Son, we're in awe that you love us, that you chose to redeem us, and that you are sovereignly working to complete your plan of salvation. Thank you that you chose to reveal yourself and your will to us through your word. Help us to grow in our love for you, to worship you more fully, and to become more like Christ because of the truth of your word. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus, Emmanuel, whose birth we celebrate this week. Amen. In the spring of 1915, Europe was still in the first year of World War I, and the United States was still at peace. Traffic was regularly crossing back and forth across the Atlantic between American ports and European ports. Uh, and in the spring of that year, a British steamer called the Lusitania was planning to take cargo and passengers from New York across the Atlantic to England. And because the United States was not at war at this point, and because press censorship wasn't really a thing yet, the Germans were taking out full-page ads in the New York Times warning passengers not to board the ship because it would be sunk on its crossing. They did this day after day after day. And when the day came for the Lusitania to leave, they ran another full-page ad saying, passengers, don't board the ship, it's going to be sunk. But that day when it was time to leave, the Lusitania left the harbor full of cargo and full of passengers. The British government was pretty concerned about the safety of the ship, and so they had sent some information to the captain to help him. They suggested that he take kind of a longer route than was uh, the normal crossing, that he avoid the coastal areas where the submarines at the time that were relatively small tended to operate, that he maintained full speed as much as possible, and that whenever he got into areas where submarines were suspected of being, that he zigzag, move in a pattern that made it really hard for the submarines to line up and sink the ship. 
So the Lusitania leaves harbor, and what does the captain do? He heads straight across the Atlantic on the same path he always goes. He got to the coast of Ireland, and when he got there, he slowed down and moved at the normal slow coastal traffic speeds. And even in areas where submarines had just been sinking ships in the previous week, he sailed straight on, no zigzagging. And so it's no surprise that on May 7, 1915, the Lusitania was sunk by a German submarine and 1,200 people lost their lives. Now, why did the passengers not heed the warning? Why did the captain not heed the warning? There's plenty of evidence that the Germans intended to do exactly what they said they were going to do. There's all kinds of, uh, of theories. The issue is still debated today in legal and military circles. Was it a legitimate target? Should they have been concerned? There's plenty of conspiracy theories, too, as there is for anything anymore. But we'll probably never actually know the answer, but we don't really need to. Because we can think of our own experience and understand how easy it is for us to rationalize our behavior in spite of warnings to the contrary, in spite of clear warnings of bad things coming if you continue on the path that you're on. And so as we think about the prophet Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah was in a similar circumstance. Isaiah was called by a very unique and very direct experience with God. If we read in Isaiah chapter 6, he was in the temple one day and he actually saw God. It was such an amazing experience and he, being a God-fearing Israelite, knew that you can't see God in your state of sin and live. And so he was terrified, as, as anyone would be. But an angel took a coal from the, from, the, from the altar and came down and purified him so that he could withstand the presence of God. And, and as he did, God asked the question, who, who, who will go? Who will I send for us? And Isaiah said, here I am, send me. And then God proceeded to tell Isaiah that his ministry would be one of taking messages to people who weren't going to listen. He was going to be warning people, he was going to be warning his own people of sin and the consequences of sin and the judgment that was to come, and he would be ignored. Now, this is a time period when the people of Israel were divided into two kingdoms. The southern kingdom of Judah, where Isaiah lived and ministered, had Jerusalem and, uh, and the temple. And then the northern kingdom of Israel uh, was most of the other tribes. And uh, unlike Judah that had a God-fearing king every few generations, the northern kingdom managed to have none. And so they were on a very different path and a very different, uh, different trajectory. But as, as God uh, called Isaiah to bring this message of, of uh, the need for repentance and the judgment that was to come uh, to the kingdom of Judah, everything that he was saying that would happen to Judah was happening at that very same time to Israel. The people of Judah were watching the kingdom of Israel be judged for their unfaithfulness, for their sin, for their lack of righteousness. And, uh, and, and yet, in spite of this example, right in front of their faces, just as God said at the beginning, the people wouldn't listen to Isaiah, and no one turned. Isaiah is a long book. It's the fourth longest in the Bible by the number of verses, and it has as broad a range of theology that it covers as, as any. But a common theme for Isaiah is the idea of righteousness. Our lack of righteousness, our need for righteousness, 
the judgment that comes because of a lack of righteousness and the plan that God has for fixing that. It's very much like the Old Testament version of the book of Romans, looking at it from two different sides of the cross. But in the midst of his prophecies about sin and about judgment to come, he also showed what God's plan was to ultimately redeem and restore uh, his people. When God called Isaiah, it might have sounded to some like he said, hey, Isaiah, I've got a job for you. It's going to take your whole life. Nobody's going to listen to you, but go do it anyway. He could have easily thought that was a failure, that getting to the end of his ministry and no one listening was a failure. But Isaiah, I think, rightly knew that success and failure only really depended on his faithfulness to God. Did he, did he do what God wanted him to do? And so as he took these messages out and, uh, and the nation failed uh, to listen, uh, he, he brings now um, in this section of Isaiah a, a, a very stern warning followed by a description of the judgment to come. But then after that, as we get into chapter 9, we catch a glimpse of God's plan to solve the problem of his people's unrighteousness and ultimately all of our unrighteousness. Isaiah 9 takes place in the context of Isaiah telling King Ahaz of Judah about the coming of the Assyrians to bring God's judgment on the northern kingdom of Israel and to warn them that the same fate will befall Judah if they fail to turn to God. After describing the judgment to come in chapter 8, he transitions to a future when the people are restored. And so that brings us to our first point this morning. God promises peace and joy. This future that Isaiah writes about is what God's ultimate plan for his people looks like. In it, God promises joy and peace. These two characteristics are the exact opposite of what he just described with the judgment for sin that the people would endure. If you look back at the very end of, uh, of chapter 8, at the very last verse of chapter 8, um, this kind of encapsulates or sum, summarizes the judgment that was to come. In chapter 8, verse 22, it says, And they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Isaiah contrasts this judgment with God's plan for the future. In this time of restoration and redemption, darkness would be replaced by light, and the people would find joy and peace. Let's read verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9 again to see this contrast. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. It's a pretty incredible future he describes and a pretty incredible flip-flop from what you see in chapter 8 and the judgment that was described uh, as coming there. But he would bring it about and he shows that the gloom and the anguish would end. The place names that he uses in here are important also. He mentions two uh, of Israel's tribes, Zebulun and Naphtali. And why did he mention those? Well, Zebulun and Naphtali were in the northernmost part of the northern kingdom. And because of that, they were the first tribes that were taken into captivity by the Assyrians. The judgment that's described in chapter 8 would begin among the people of Zebulun and Naphtali. 
But that same area, Zebulun and Naphtali, is the area that almost 700 years later would be commonly known as Galilee. It's the place that Jesus would begin his ministry. And so the judgment that was, to, that was proclaimed in chapter 8 and the redemption and restoration that begins in chapter 9 both happen and both start in the same place. God likes to do things like that to, to help us see that he really is planning and controlling all of these things and working them together in ways that are, are beyond our ability to understand. He then continues with the, uh, with the contrast between darkness and light in, in verse 2. Uh, the end of chapter 8 where judgment is described is all about darkness. It's darkness in the absence of God's blessing, darkness in the absence of hope. Darkness in the absence of the people's willingness to repent of their sins and to turn back to God. But in this future that God is, is describing here in chapter 9, darkness is replaced by light, light of hope, light of the blessing of God's presence and the light of God's people worshiping him rightly. As Isaiah, as Isaiah describes this new reality that he, was about, that he would bring about, verse 3 shows that this new reality is one that's filled with joy. Verse 3 says, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. In contrast to the anguish and gloom of judgment, God's redemption brings about a state of joy for his people. And this is the same state of joy that would have been uh, understood by a farming people like this when a good harvest came in, when they knew that they would be, pro be provided for for the coming year. It's the same kind of joy that uh, soldiers would feel after a hard-fought battle dividing the spoils. In verses 4 and 5, God promises that his future is also one of peace. He says in verses 4 and 5, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. The oppression and war that are going to come as part of God's judgment on his people will come to an end. There will be a day when that is replaced by a time of peace. Instead of oppression, there will be God's victory and the peace that it brings. And this peace won't be a, a transient peace that's broken uh, at some point in the future, and it won't be a peace that's merely the absence of fighting. We don't have to look very far in our world for examples of imperfect peace. There's almost every day in the news where there's fighting somewhere or the threat of fighting somewhere. And those that are living in those places, just because there's no fighting today doesn't bring them peace because they fear that it'll come back tomorrow. The peace that God brings will be a peace that will have no end. And just like he brought about the liberation from Midian that's referenced in this, uh, in this passage by his own power, uh, not by human armies, he's going to do the same thing at the end. This reference to Midian takes us back to chapters 6 and 7 of Judges, where the people of Midian were oppressing the people of Israel, and God called a guy named Gideon to lead his people to, uh, to liberation. Uh, when Gideon first made the call, he had 32,000 men show up to go fight the Midianites. Probably was feeling pretty good. But God looked at that army and what did he say? It's too many. We don't need that many. So he had Gideon go out and say, anybody who's afraid, anybody who has something else they'd rather be doing right now, go ahead and go home. 
I'm not sure what Gideon expected to happen when he said that, but 22,000 people got up and left. He was left with 10,000. Not sure again what he thought with the 10,000 that were left, but he was ready to go. But then what what did God do again? God looked at the army of 10,000 and he said, it's too many. I don't need that many. And so they took them down to the stream to have everybody take their their drinks from the stream and they watched and anyone who stuck their face in the water got sent home. Anybody who used their hand to cup water and bring it up and drink got to stay. And after that, his army of 10,000 was down to 300. 300 against the whole host of Midian that was camped against them that had defeated them time after time after time. And so God took these 300 men these 300 that, uh, that he would choose to use, and he had them put torches in jars so that they could walk without everybody seeing that they were coming to take trumpets. And they went up into the hills around the Midianite camp, and when they were in position and the time was right, they broke their jars so they could get out the torch, lifted it up, blew on the trumpet, yelled a sword for the Lord and for Gideon, and what happened? God moved in the camp of the Midianites, and they began to kill each other. Eventually, They started to flee, and it was only as they fled that God allowed the other Israelite soldiers who had left the day before to come back and take part in the pursuit. Now, why did God choose only 300 men, and why did he choose to use them in this way? It's because he wanted to make sure that no one could ever look back on this time and say, Gideon saved us, or to say, we and our army saved ourselves. There was no way that this was anything but the work of God. And it'll be the same way at the end, he says here. It will be broken as on the day of Midian. The the oppression, the, uh, the war that comes because of God's judgment will in the end be ended by God himself. And he won't need any help to do it. As we think about verses one, and t- uh, verses 1 and 2, these are already verses that have been fulfilled. Christ has already come. That's why we're celebrating this week, right? Christ has already come, but the gap between verse 2 and verse 3 is already more than 2,000 years long. We who have uh, received God's gift of salvation experience the joy and the peace that he describes here today, but only imperfectly. But there will be a day to come when we will feel it and experience it perfectly when Christ returns. Many in this room today are facing trials. These trials are, some are known, some are not known, some are just known to the person. As we face our own darkness, whether that darkness is because of our own sin or because the sin of those around us or just from the fact that we live in a fallen world where sickness and death still happen, we can have hope. We can have hope that God's promises are true. And that just as his promise of his son coming happened, and we can, we can believe that, we can now have hope that the other things that he promised are also true. For many of us, Christmas is a joyful holiday, but for others, it's a really hard time as you may be struggling with broken relationships or the loss of loved ones. It's a good time to remember that the joy of Christmas isn't the tinsel and bows that we see. It's the joy of knowing that God has a plan to fix all of this and that he's already working to make it happen. This brings us to our second point today, that God accomplishes his purpose through Emmanuel. Isaiah now describes how God will bring about what he just promised. And we see that God accomplishes his purpose through Emmanuel. 
This name first appears in Isaiah chapter 7 as part of a, uh, uh, of a sign for King Ahaz that a virgin uh, will, bear a, will bear a child and will be named Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us, and these verses describe for us who this child will be. When we were younger, my wife and I were part of a uh, Sunday school class at Bethany Baptist called Foundations. There's several people in this room who are part of that, uh, that class as well. And because of the stage of life, birth announcements and pregnancy announcements were a regular event. Happened all the time. Uh, and there were so many different ways that people chose to make those announcements. Sometimes Somebody would just come in like normal, and during prayer request time, they would just coyly insert some, something that let us know that they were expecting. Other times, they'd, uh, somebody would maybe bring in one of their older children with a big brother or big sister shirt on and just wait for somebody to notice. Other, other folks were more dramatic, and they'd come running in at the last minute with pillows uh, shoved under the shirts of the mom and dad-to-be so that everyone would see that, uh, that they, too, we're expecting. We didn't have, uh, this was back in the olden days, so we didn't have gender reveal parties back then, but we still managed to celebrate as we, uh, as we, uh, as we, uh, as we went through these announcements. But, uh, you know, and everybody had their different theories on how to, how, to even, how to even do this. So when would you announce? What was the right time? Um, would you find out the gender? If you did know the gender, would you share the gender? Would you share the name? Beth and I always chose to find out the gender and share it because we might be planners who like to have all our ducks in a row. Uh, but we also didn't share the names because we thought there should be something that was a surprise and uh, that didn't affect our ability uh, to plan anything. We'd usually have to wait until uh, a couple of days before the child was expected uh, and then we'd have to start telling our parents because we needed my dad to come and hang the name on the wall because he was way more precise than I was. It wouldn't have looked good if I had to hang Anna on the wall. Uh, but uh, he would come and do it. And so, of course, if we had to tell him, we had to tell mom. And if we had to tell my parents, we had to tell her parents. But usually we were able to stop it at that until the, uh, the actual birth. But as we get to verse 6 here, this is a similar announcement. It's a birth announcement, but it's given 700 years in advance. And it's an announcement through which God reveals more about how he will bring about the redemption of his people. Verse 6 is one of the most famous verses in the Old Testament, at least partially uh, thanks to George Friedrich Kandel and his Messiah. Uh, but because of that, and I find this to be true of myself with a lot of the really well-known verses in Scripture, I don't always think about it as much as I should. And yet this one verse has so much in it that communicates to us about God's uh, plan and how he's going to bring it about. Let's look at it together. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. For to us a child is born. This tells us that the one that's to come is human. He would be born just like every other human being has except for Adam and Eve. It tells us that the, that, the, that the child to come, the one who will bring salvation, will be fully human. To us, a son is given. This phrase points to the deity of the child. This is the son of God himself that will come to earth physically uh, as he carries out his father's will. This Old Testament verse shows us that the Messiah to come will be fully God and fully man. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. Here Isaiah indicates that he will have authority. 
the government, the responsibility of ruling these redeemed and restored people will be the responsibility or upon the shoulder of this child, and he will carry it out. So the child is a unique person who is fully God and fully man, the only person capable of bringing about the redemption of God's people and their restoration. Now, four names are given for this child, and each one reinforces who he is. The names are tied to characteristics and actions that the child uh, will have. Going back to the birth announcement uh, thing, imagine getting one of those uh, cute little cards in the mail with a picture of a friend's newborn baby. Has their name, has their birth date, the length, the weight, all the other things that you put on those little cards that you mail out. But what if underneath it, you looked at it and it also said, champion swimmer, accomplished author, and sought-after conference speaker. It would seem a little outlandish on a birth announcement to say that much about what the child will be when they grow up, and man, I'd hate to be that kid pigeonholed into whatever that was that the parents decided on that day to put on there. But that's what God does, and that's what God is able to do because he is the one that came up with the plan, he's the one executing the plan, so he can say 700 years in advance what this child is going to, uh, what this child is going to do. He starts off with wonderful counselor. This child will provide wisdom that is wondrously beyond human understanding. This is also a phrase that's used in Isaiah 28:29 for God himself, where he says that God is wonderful in counsel. The wonderful counselor will show us the way to God, first and foremost, and then how to live in a way that honors him. James tells us that if anyone lacks wisdom, they should ask God. And this is the start of, a, of, of helping us to see that the child to come is God. Next is mighty God. This is the most obviously divine of the four names, since it directly calls this child God. And not just God, but mighty God. The child will very literally be God with us. This specific phrase, mighty God, is also used for God himself, for God the Father in Scripture, including in verse 21 of the very next chapter when Isaiah writes, a remnant will return, a remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. This child will be God. Interestingly, other translators have, uh, have, ch have chosen to translate mighty differently at different times. Uh, one way that it can be translated is hero. And that's the word that Martin Luther used in German, of course, when he translated uh, this verse in, into German, hero God. And I think that helps us to give us a, another sense of the way that we can see this child as the one who will come to rescue us. In our world, we've almost made hero uh, uh, too insignificant a word, but, uh, but this is the one who will come and who will save us. And then there's everlasting father. Uh, this is uh, a common one throughout Scripture where God is referred to as the father of his people or, conversely, the people of Israel and, and ultimately the church are referred to as his children. God being the father is a, is a common term that you find Moses use in the Pentateuch and the psalmists use and the prophets, both Isaiah and Jeremiah, among others, will use. But he's also the everlasting father or sometimes the father forever. And this shows that he can only be God because only God uh, can do that forever. And finally, Prince of Peace. In verses 4 and 5, Isaiah painted a picture of God bringing peace to his world. 
The one who will do this is the child referred to in this verse. As Prince of Peace, he will bring in victory that ushers in God's eternal peace. Verse 7 is less well known, but continues to describe the work of this child. This wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace will be the final ruler. The verse says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. When this child comes and when this child reigns, he will rule with justice and righteousness for all of eternity. This plan of God's to bring about redemption through a child who's both God and man can be a source of encouragement and hope for us. We know that the child has already come, and that's why we can continue to hope in the future of his plan. As we consider the birth of Jesus this week, we remember that Jesus was born as a child, fully experiencing human life as a human being, though a sinless one. It's a great picture of God's love, but it's also a picture of what would be necessary to redeem God's people. Only someone who is fully God and fully man could pay the price for sin, satisfying God's wrath, and opening the path to our redemption. So as we sing about the baby in the manger, we remember that this baby will grow up, live a sinless life, obey God in everything, pay the price for our sin on the cross, be resurrected in conquest of death, and even now he's sitting at the right hand of God waiting to return. And this brings us to our final point, one that comes from a very short part of the passage, to be sure, but that's so very important. And that's that God carries out his plan because of who he is. The last part of verse 7 is a really relatively short and straightforward statement compared to some of the other language in this passage. It says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's an easy phrase to lose at the end of this grand passage, but it contains a truth that gives us hope. It's a common saying that no battle plan survives first contact with the enemy. We know that we can plan all we want, but because we don't control all of the variables, we can't guarantee the outcome. Leaders lay out plans all the time. We plan careers, families, vacations. If nothing else, we've learned in the last couple of years that we probably have less control over things than we even thought. To paraphrase the Scottish poet Robert Burns, the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. Anyone can say what they want to happen. Only God can actually make his plans happen completely and as he intends. God has the wisdom, God has the power, and God has the consistency of character. If he says it will be done, it will be done. If he says it will be done in this way, it will be done in that way. Examples of this abound in Scripture from the flood to the judgment that Isaiah is talking about here to the coming of his son. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Zeal refers to both his intent and his passion to see it accomplished, while the name Lord of hosts indicates God is the commander of all the armies of heaven. There is no one more powerful than God that can get in the way of him accomplishing his purpose. We can hope in Emmanuel and God with us and the salvation and restoration that he brings because of the God who promised it. He is a God who can and does keep his promises no matter what. Let's pray. 
Thank you, Lord, that you have provided us with the opportunity for redemption. Thank you that your plan, which was laid down before the foundation of the world, is certain. As we celebrate Christmas, may we be reminded of our need for a Savior and of your gracious and loving plan to provide that Savior as a child born in Bethlehem of the line of David, who will one day rule with justice and righteousness for all eternity. May we have hope in your promise of redemption as we remember when Emmanuel, God with us, became a reality. Amen. Amen.